This episode of The Flush Podcast is brought to you by Waltons, Aluma Trailers, North Dakota Tourism, Federal Ammunition, Onyx Hunt, and by Nutrisource Pet Foods. Today I'm joined by Matt Morlock, Pheasants Forever State Coordinator in North and South Dakota. We'll discuss this potentially devastating bomb cyclone that has pummeled America's bird country, the effects of all this snow, cold, wind, and ice, and what hunters can expect as we close out this season and head into the new year. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to all of you. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host, Brandon Morton, is our producer. Brandon, we are, it is the eve of Christmas Eve as we sit here today, and it is nasty outside. So cold, so miserable out there, but uh, the fire is warm inside. Do you have anything Waiting in a stocking? Anything on your Christmas list that you're excited about? Nothing that I'm aware of. I mean, how would I know what I'm getting in my stocking? How about, <laughs> how about yourself? <laughs> well, are you getting cold this year? I, you know, there's a small chance. I hope not. But there's a small <laughs> chance. I've had fun. Uh, <laughs> do you put together a Christmas wish list still? I do not. I do not. It would probably Aww. make my make the life and other you know people in my lives lives easier. But uh, no, sure. I don't. How about yourself? I do. No, I don't. I okay. don't at all, actually. And then my wife's like, "Well, what would you like? Do you like anything?" I was like, "Nope. I just want to get the kids stuff." And then um, you know, we just focus so much on them. Um, and then we always say, "Okay, we won't get each other gifts." But I just love her so much that even when I say that, I still get her something. And then she gets mad at me because I get her something, and then she's like, "You said we weren't getting gifts." But <laughs> anyway, uh, it's complicated. <laughs> and then she ends up getting me something too. So I don't know hey, what we're gonna get. Uh, at least, thing- at least you guys try. We just <laughs> yeah, say, exactly. "Go buy what you want. I'll go buy what I want, and then we'll just <laughs> yeah. wrap it up." There you go. Matt Morlock is our guest today. Matt, um, do you have anything hanging above a fireplace at your house that you're excited to open? Uh, yeah, I got a couple nice gifts coming, I think. Um, you know, like you I said, we get to pick our own presents out. So, Well, think, then what did you order for yourself? I think there's a new bino harness sitting somewhere wrapped up right now. Good for you. Well, it is like I said, the eve of before, the eve of Christmas Eve. As we sit here today, uh, this episode I do believe will air shortly after Christmas. We're recording a little bit ahead of time because we're hoping to take a little bit of time with our families here this next week between Christmas and New Year's. But we know that there's a lot of people that are going to be hunting and traveling, and we want to make sure that we can hopefully entertain and educate and inspire, you know, like always, but really just kind of get down to the, to the nitty gritty here. Like what in the world are we dealing with out there? Um, so depending on Brandon's schedule, this episode will go out early next week, midweek, something like that. Um, thank you so much, Brandon, for all you've done this year. You continue to keep this show alive. I can't thank you enough. I actually feel like I need to come over and slip something in your stocking to make you happy, to let you know how much I appreciate everything you've done here as we head into the new year. Maybe that's what I'll do when you come back from the new year. Is that okay? Hey, that works for me. I mean, you're taking me hunting, so that's that's a gift in itself. 
Yeah, there is that. There is yeah. that. Okay. All right. Well, Merry Christmas, buddy. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. <laughs> Same to you. <laughs> I just, I actually, this might not be a good gift because I was just out there two days ago in the blizzard and, oh, it's like, I, so I have to get outside. I can't, like, if I'm cooped up in the house for a full day, my wife is like, what is wrong with you? I have not, God did not make me to stay inside and I am not very much fun after like 24 hours in inside. So anyway, I went out hunting. I took Daisy because fortunately she's just like me. She wants to go and uh, we knew this nasty wind was coming, um, but it wasn't that windy yet. It was like negative four and snowing pretty hard. And I thought, I've got an hour. I'm going to go out. Um, the cattails... Uh, I anticipated being full of snow, but I can't stress how miserable it was to walk in them. Uh, my dog, I, I, I mean, like the snow is to the top of the cattails and it's all powder. So as you're trying to push and walk, um, it's just sucks, but there are still birds out there and we, we were able to outsmart a couple of them that were not in the cattails. They were in some of the pine trees and the willows. And I saw in about an hour walk here in central Minnesota, I saw 13 birds. I saw seven hens, six roosters. The sixth rooster that I saw came home with us. Daisy goes on point. I, I get the buzz at 92 yards or 102 or something like that. And I looked at the direction and I'm like, oh, so I'm walking through waist deep snow drifts, knee deep snow drifts. And it's just brutal to try to get there. And she's holding point. And I, I walk up to where I can see her and she's just staring in the snow. And I'm like, uh, is, uh, that could be. I saw like as I'm walking closer, I'm like, she she's just been on fire lately. So I knew the body language that she was showing me was there's a bird right there. But if you looked at it, if anyone looked at it, you'd say, no way. It's just, it's just white flat snow everywhere. But there was like four just little tiny pieces of grass sticking up out of the snow at that spot that she was pointing. And I'm like, I bet you that's where the bird is. I walk right up to it. I start kicking the snow and right underneath me, I start seeing the snow kind of like pop up. And then, boom, just this big explosion. And this rooster comes up. And I've got so many layers on and a puffy jacket. And I'm sweaty on the inside. And I'm trying to shoulder my gun. And I put it up. And boom, one shot. And Daisy runs through the snow, jumping through, and grabs a bird and brings it back. And I'm like, girl, we're going home. That's it. That is That made the hunt. But I can't stress how ridiculous it is out there right now. And I thought, this is exactly why we need to have this conversation today. So that's why Matt Morlock is on the show. Matt, I appreciate you making time. I know you've got family um, obligations here, but you are, I'm going to say you're responsible. Maybe not responsible is the right word, but you oversee Pheasants Forever operations in North and South Dakota, the epicenter of this bomb cyclone. We've got it in Montana, Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas. I mean, everybody's getting hit with this right now, but I feel like you've got a good pulse on what's happening out there. 
in bird country. Minnesota closes at the end of December, the season, January 1st, actually. What is the actual closing date on North Dakota season? Oh, I knew you were going to. It's North Dakota. I was waiting for South Dakota, so I'm not prepped on North Dakota. I should know this. Stumped you right off the bat. So we're going to have to do some editing. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's the end of December. I'm pretty sure. It's, it's the end. It's the end of December. I couldn't. Rem- I can't. In my head, I'm trying to remember if there's if it goes through. Um, Maybe Brandon can do a quick Google search on North first. Dakota upland bird hunting season, but I'm pretty sure it's the end of December in Minnesota. It's basically it's the January end of December, 1st. except for it's January first. Okay, gotcha. Yep. And sorry, I had to look. At, I had to look it up quick. Just because that's all right. I'm not, okay. I don't hunt, I don't get to hunt up there as much as I want to. So I'm like, mm-hmm. what, is it the first or is it the 31st? They're, every state's a little different. I don't want to lead anybody astray on that one. Well, that's a big now, big oops. Exactly, but but South Dakota two years ago made the decision to extend the season through January yeah. through the end of January, and I think that's a. It's a big conversation, and we talked about this last year, I believe, but it's worth talking about this year again. Uh, whereabouts are you in South Dakota? Where's home? Um, home base for me is Brookings, South Dakota. It's right on the far eastern edge, but um, mm-hmm. I also have a farm north of Huron, between Huron and Redfield, South Dakota. So kind of okay. right in the heart of that James River Valley. It's got to be known as so good for pheasant hunting. Um, we got about a 1,500-acre farm right in the middle of that. Well, so that's I, 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 kinda, I keep track. I keep track of that area more than I keep track of the Brookings area. Okay. Well, I got to see that farm, I believe it was two yep. years ago now. And I, yeah. that was a start of a major habitat project that you guys were working on. Um, how did it, how did it evolve going through this season? Um, this year it was, the response has been phenomenal. Um, we got all of our, all the grass seeded, um, in the last two years, we've seeded about 300 acres of grass back um, for both a mix of CRP, which will be sitting um, for habitat, always standing cover. Um, and, then, and we took about another 100 and some acres and we put it into, we're putting it back to pasture land. It was low production farm ground. It was just better for cattle. Um, so we planted about 100 acres of grass for that. Um, with like everything, it's hard to get supplies. So and we didn't get our fencing and water done. So that sat in idle this year too. Um, so we had a lot of additional habitat this year and it, the birds responded. Um, the populations were really high um, leading into the last month. Um, while I was sitting out deer hunting, it was very tempting to slide out and go pheasant hunting instead. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. When you, you can just sit up in the stand and look out over the grass and just watch the birds right. go back and forth, back and forth. When you're up in the stand watching it, do you learn anything about the birds? You know, I do. I, I'm always watching them and you learn, you just learn their habits and their patterns and their behaviors where they're, where they're using at different times of the day. Cause that those groups, they'll move around during the day and they'll use different parts of the farm in the morning and then in the afternoon they're in somewhere else and middle of the afternoon they're over in this other spot and they just kind of move around that farm mm-hmm. you know i can see most of the half section from my stand and it, it, throughout the day and it's the same pretty much the same pattern every day um huh. so you kind of really can sit there and learn and watch their behavior and it's kind of it's really interesting to watch do they do anything that surprises you 
Um, not really surprised. It all makes me sit there and think about it. It makes sense because it's in the mornings they're all going to be in that. There's some really thick covered on the north end of the property, and that's where they all kind of roost at night. And you you would expect that. Then they kind of move out to the thinner edges throughout the day, and then they'll go back into that thicker cover, and then they'll come. They just bounce back and forth between the thick cover and the thin cover. What they're doing is they're going from loafing and and roosting sites and that thicker cover, and they're moving up to that thin stuff to feed and move about and kind of stretch their legs, and then they bounce back in there. Um, just to be safe from predators. And they don't want to spend a bunch of time in that thin cover. Um, and so it's, it makes sense once you're, you're thinking about it, but mm-hmm. you don't really understand it. You learn more about the land than the birds at that point. You're, you're learning where your cover's at and what, where your cover's at for different times of the day. So you're actually yeah. learning a lot more about the landscape than you are the birds themselves. Well, I think that's important as a hunter though, to understand how birds use particular habitats within a property and where to target depending on the time of the day, because it really does make a difference. I mean, there are times of the day when there probably aren't many birds even in the grass, right? I mean, they're out feeding somewhere. How do you, when you're sitting there, I mean, most of your hunters get in real early. Sometimes it's dark or first light sneak into the stand. At what point are the birds starting to leave the roost that you've noticed, especially late season like this? Yeah, They're usually leaving about, half an hour after first light they'll start talking about first light and then they're not really moving and then about a half an hour after you start seeing the first ones getting up and moving out kind of those temperatures are just starting to climb up Um, and that kind of that exodus from the heavy cover out to the feeding loafing cover goes on for about an hour or so um then you start seeing them bounce slowly back into that thicker cover or going up and using the shelter belts and things like that just to get overhead cover um, and kind of stay out of the eyes of predators and stuff like that. So it's usually about hour increments where they start, you see them kind of moving around. Um, you mentioned the overhead cover. Some of the best pheasant properties that I've ever hunted on have some kind of a pine tree um, on the property. It's usually a row, a couple of rows, um, which is interesting because a lot of times people want to remove trees from property, but yet there's something about trees that offer extra protection, right? It, it's an easy, it's an easy protection for them. Um, you know how those pine trees are shaped is either open underneath if there's a lot of branches above it, but they're open closer to the ground. Um, so they make it just very easy for them to get in there and move around um, and stay with something over their head where they're not having mm-hmm. to fight. Like you can do, they can do the same thing in cattails or or uh, good thick grass or, you know, weed patches, but it's a little harder to move around in. Um, with those pine trees, they can get kind of underneath and it's wide open because pine trees have kind of smothered everything else out and they can move around really freely at that point. Um, so it's an ease situation. You can do the same thing um, with other cover types, but trees are easy. Um, and that's, mm. you know, that's something that so, you got to do it right. You don't want to just go stick your trees to put trees out you get that's where you know it really helps to work with local foresters or pheasants forever staff to lay it out right um so mm-hmm. that you're maximizing the benefits of them but they definitely do like them and you're right you always find them in them especially in these mm-hmm. bad or win the bad winters and stuff like that they like to go in there well that's a heck of a good segue for what we're going to discuss next because as i sit here right now um 
temperature is like six degrees below zero with a 30 mile an hour wind, putting the wind chill somewhere in the negative 30, 40 degree range. I know there are places in the Dakotas, Montana, that wind chills right now are more than 50 below zero. Um, it's brutal. It's just brutal. I mean, there, the, a lot of the headlines, um, I don't have to tell people about it, that it's been cold, depending on when you're listening to this. Yeah, you know it. It's been cold. Uh, it's been nasty out there. What is it right now where you are, Matt? Uh, wind chill right now, I'm on the weather service site, and it's negative 40 with wind chill. Negative 40. Um, air temperature is negative 8 with, uh, I think it's gusting up to 30 mile an hour winds. So it's it warmed up. Last night was negative 55 or 56, I think. So will you go hunt today? Not today. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to wait for it to get to the plus side. Yeah. I'm Brandon, really eyeing this, to... this forecast for the end of the week. Next week, yeah. they're talking 35 to uh, in the 30s. I'm looking at that really hard. Yes. And I, <laughs> I know everyone else is too. I as well am looking at that because I'm hoping to get out a couple more times here before the end of the season. Um, but I think when people get out there in the field, I just told you that story about that that short little hunt that I went on at the start of this blizzard. Um I think it's going to surprise people just how miserable all that snow is out there. What are what are you thinking? What's going through your mind right now? What's going through Pheasants Forever's mind right now thinking about this massive storm that has crippled bird country here? Yeah, there's it's not a panic situation, but there's concern out there. Um, if this drags on, there's a lot a lot of stuff is socked in tight. Um we needed that warm pat, that warm spell to come, which I hope it's looking like we're going to get some warm up um, because it's we're dragging in, you know, in South Dakota at least. Last week we had a four day storm that socked everything in with a lot of snow, um, like a foot of snow in some areas or foot plus in some areas. Now, this week, this bomb cyclone came in with a really cold temperatures, not as much snow, a lot of wind. So that's two weeks in a row where these birds have been kind of cooped up and not really able to move around like they want to and get to the food sources as easily and that kind of stuff. So um, if there's drug on for another week or two, we'd probably start to see some, some die off. Um, but luckily it looks like we're going to dodge a bullet on it. Um, and so start warming up next week again. So I think we're going to, we're cautiously optimistic um, that we're going to dodge a bullet on this thing and not have too much mortality. Um, but it's definitely going to make hunting Harder in that getting out to the spots is going to be hard, but the birds mm-hmm. are going to be congregated. So when you get into them, they're going to be they're going to be there. Have you heard about mortality yet in any uh, any areas? I, I've heard of a couple people talking about it in Montana. I know winter came early in Montana. I mean it it hit us here in the Dakotas and Minnesota in mid November, early November as well. But we had a little warmth to kind of break that up. I don't know if they had that in Montana. I think it's been tough out there. I've heard some mortality in Western North Dakota, kind of that same, same storm system socked them in as it did Montana and they haven't warmed up. Um, down here, I haven't heard of any yet. We had that bad ice storm that same time, mm-hmm. um, but then it warmed back up and thawed out and, I really didn't hear any mortality from that, which I was expecting to hear some mortality because it was quarter inch of ice and, and really nasty. Yeah. Um, but for some reason, you know, God was looking out for us. And I talked to a lot of farmer friends of mine that 
our pheasant hunters that are out every day and they didn't see any mortality. You know, I haven't seen any at our place. So, so far we've been all right in, in South Dakota. Like I said, Western North Dakota, I think picks them up in those first early storms. Um, but it, I think we're going to be okay. When you say they haven't seen the mortality yet, the, your friends, where would they see it? Where, I mean, if you're out there hunting and your dog brings back a frozen bird, I mean, that's obviously a sign, but right now people aren't seeing it because they're probably hunkered down like you and I are because it's <laughs> negative 50 degree wind chills. Right. Where do you see these birds? I know when they're stressed, a lot of times they come up on the road, um, you know, so you'll see that, but beyond they're that, gonna, where do they see them? Yeah, they're going to, you're going to see them gravitate towards, you know, you wouldn't think it, but around livestock areas. Um, they like to go into those areas where there's fresh feed for the livestock and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. So when those those friends are out feeding cattle and doing those kind of chores, that's when they'll start seeing dead birds when there's a, a situation where we're seeing a lot of mortality and they're not seeing it. They're seeing the birds come up in there um, and getting a hot breakfast in the mornings and stuff like that. But um, they're not seeing the, the mortality end of it yet. So and that's just, you know, they're well, not out. They're not out hunting, but they're they're like when they're out there doing their chores or they're paying attention because they're they're diehard hunters like us. If you've used the Onyx Hunt app before, then you realize how valuable it is in the field when you're hunting and all of the information that it shows you. And now Onyx just released a new feature. If you run the Onyx Hunt app on an iPhone, you now have Apple CarPlay. Yep, the app now works on the dash in your vehicle. And if you have an Android or a phone that's not an iPhone, they're working on the exact same thing that will be released soon. So instead of holding onto your phone, trying to understand who owns which property, it's right there on the dash, just like the maps that you would see on Google Maps or Waze or whatever um, navigation system you use in your vehicle. Now you just touch the Onyx app. If you don't have it in your car yet, all you have to do is go into your phone and update the app, and it will automatically show up. Click the on X, the red X, and you're good to go. All of the layers that you have and all of the waypoints are going to show up on the map, just like if you're using it on your phone. Onyx maps work in the field, and now they work in your vehicle too. Onyx Hunt always helps you to know where you stand. I love my dog, and like you, I always want to make sure that she has what she needs to stay healthy year-round and perform at her best in the field. That's why I feed Daisy Nutrisource high-performance dog food. Nutrisource dog food comes with their good-for-life system that includes four key ingredients that work together to support gut health, heart health, and the overall well-being of our dogs. I have complete confidence that my dog has all of the nutrition to excel in the field and make it through a rigorous hunting season. I've seen it firsthand, and she loves her food. Take it from me and my dog, Daisy. Nutrisource high-performance dog food can help your dog reach their full potential. Find the food that's right for your dog at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. If you're an outdoor lover on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you want to haul. Aluma Trailers, well, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. 
Trust me when I say that Aluma trailers tow like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. Technically, the week before Christmas was the the winter solstice, so winter has just officially begun, technically. Right. Um, that's a scary part about this in that, I mean, there's a there's so much time left and for it to be so brutal on wildlife right now, every day that I'm outside, I just think like, how do they survive? How do they make it? And they do, you know, they, they do and they will. Um, but that I think is probably the biggest concern. And, and it's not just me. It's a lot of my friends that pheasant hunt too, or that, you know, hunt for quail, uh, uh, partridge. I mean, some of these birds are more e- equipped, I guess I would say, to handle it than others. Um, but it, it prolong. This is just not good. A friend of mine, George Lyle, lives out in western Minnesota, not far from you. And they had, before the first big storm came the week before Christmas, not the bomb cyclone, but the one prior to that where it was warmer, uh, before the snow came in, they had ice. So he sent me a photo and... There's a half an inch of ice covering everything. And he's afraid that it's just going to devastate the birds out there, um, especially if they can't catch a break here soon. I mean, they need a good thaw and it has to come soon. How long can they survive in these conditions before they get some kind of a, a break? Is there like a rough number, like 10 straight days of of brutal weather is the max they can last? Or is there no real exact number there's not an exact number that i'm aware of but i usually within 10 days if it doesn't start warming up if it stays below zero and there's ice cover that's that's not good that's you're you're probably gonna start really losing birds it's that kind of around that 10 day mark um but that's like i don't know any studies on it it's just Mm -hmm. observation over 20 years um what i've kind of seen so we're gonna be close i i I'm nervous like George's. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we're we're going to be right pushing on that edge. Um, but I think, I think we're going to be okay. I like your, I like your glass half full approach. I always talk try to, to be that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there's no point in, in not. And the other um, thing, you know, these birds, we, this is, we've gotten soft because the last three years have been really, really, really open and really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, True. It, it's, We've had winters like this before. We're, even if we see mortality, um, they'll make it. The populations will make it through as a whole. Um, so we'll be okay. Um, I, you know, I don't want to be all Debbie Downer that we're going to lose everything. So we won't. Mm-hmm. We've just we've gotten used to being thirty in the middle of December. And sometimes in South Dakota, forty and fifty. <laughs> yeah, and no snow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. if there's a blessing here, let's look at. Glass half full here. There's moisture on the ground, and we need there it. Is. We've, we've needed, needed it for months. Yes, we've really needed it out here. Um, that that is the pot. That's what some of my friends are talking. And I in, at our farm, it's like, well, our wetlands are going to be full finally again in the spring. Yeah, um, we, our wetlands were down a lot. We were seeing in the northeast part of the state. We were seeing roadbeds that we haven't seen since 1995 that were showing back up. Um, yeah, so we could use the moisture anyway. So that's a positive. Yep. 
Let's try to keep what the positives it, in this one. Yes. What does it <laughs> look like on the landscape right now? When's the last time you've walked on your property or out there to give somebody an idea that might be saying, hey, I've got the week off between Christmas and New Year's. I'm going to South Dakota pheasant hunting. The weather's looking a lot better. You know, we've got 30s and even 40 in the in the forecast. Um, what can they expect when they get there? I mean, are we talking five foot tall drifts? Are we talking not that bad? I, I mean, this it's hard yeah. to say probably at this moment with the wind still blowing the way it is, but yeah, give us an idea. This, yeah, prior to this, I was out at the farm moving snow so we could get the roads open and stuff like that. Um, and you, there were some five-foot, six-foot drifts, you know, on the edges of the shelter belt. It's in those areas where you'd expect them. Um, mm-hmm. The rest of the areas, it was blowing kind of level. There's probably, you know, a foot of snow on the ground. Um, so it's not easy getting around. Um, and, you know, getting off the main roadways is probably not going to happen. You know, getting the county and township gravel roads are all opening back up again. Um, so you should be able to get around in vehicles, but getting out in the fields and stuff like that, it's going to it's gonna be hard as far as with any kind of vehicles or anything like that, which if you're hunting public lands, not an issue anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good opportunity, something I'm excited about, because I used to do this when we had winters like this frequently is, but bringing out the snowshoes. Um, oh. I'd highly recommend wearing snowshoes when you're out here. It makes it a heck of a lot easier, easier and more fun to get out in these conditions if you have snowshoes on. How about for your dog? Um, you know, the dogs typically, you know, I usually hunt with a cocker spaniel. He's light enough. They can run over the top of it. Um, and, and it's, it's hard packed snow, so they shouldn't have too much trouble. Then you get to those cattail sloughs and we've all seen it where those dogs just dive in head first and they're underneath mm-hmm. the cover. You know, it's, you just see the snow falling off the cattails and that's how you track your dog at that point. <laughs> Yo. um, oh. So it's, you know, the dogs seem to handle it. They're, they handle it fine. Or that, you know, and you know, for people and dogs to find them, those deer trails that are out there too. And just kind of sticking on those helps you get around too. But um, something mm-hmm. I used to do a lot of, like I said, and enjoyed was snowshoe hunting. Strap on snowshoes, and it's hard when the bird gets up behind you (laughs) to get to get turned around (laughs) and not trip over your own feet. But um, it really works well to get around in these conditions. Is just strapping a pair of snowshoes on. That's a great pro pointer. I will also add a pro pointer when you get out there um, and you're bundled up and you have another jacket on than you probably have been used to wearing all fall. Shoulder it a couple times, and as you're walking and you start getting warm and things start to move a little bit, shoulder your gun again. And here's why. So I told you the story about the one I got. I didn't tell you the story about the one I didn't get prior to that (laughs) because I had a bird get up um, unexpectedly to my right. And when I swung, I thought it was going to get up. Daisy had stopped and I'm working this tree line and she stops and I'm walking up expecting it to get up in front of her, but must've been the way that she picked up the scent anyway. It got up, I had walked past it and it got up kind of right to my right and behind me. And when I turned, like you said, I had a little bit of a puffy jacket on and I don't usually wear a jacket. I stuck the the butt of the gun right underneath the puffy jacket and I could not shoulder it. And that bird sailed clean away, no shots fired. And I was like, dang it. Just a reminder, make sure with all the extra layers on that you can quickly put the gun up. And think about it a couple times as you're walking out there, because it could be the difference in you walking a mile through snow for nothing or a mile through snow with a bird in your vest when you're done. 
Um, Matt, I, this is a topic that I, I don't know if there's a, a perfect answer to this, but over the years, I've talked to a lot of landowners that farm their land for crops and wildlife and really with an emphasis on pheasants. And they like at the end of the season to take as many roosters off their property as possible. And the reason they do this is because you don't need very many roosters to get it on with those hens to reproduce. Um, but those roosters can be jerks. They can be a-holes out there and push hens out of cover and keep them away from the f- limited food. Um, do you agree or disagree with that uh, belief? Totally. I was something I was going to bring up, so I'm glad you did. Um, th- this is the case, is these situations in these winters like this, that having too many roosters is, can be a detriment to you because it's typically there's enough habitat for the birds to spread out and it's fine. But when you start filling in with four foot, five foot snowdrifts and habitat starts becoming limiting, those roosters are bigger than the hens and they are going to, they'll get in there and they'll start pushing them out. And it's really a big deal at night where they'll push those hens out to the edges of the thermal cover. And all of a sudden your core stuff is filled up with the roosters and your hens are on the edges. And like you said, we don't need very many of those roosters in the springtime. They, they do a very good job of making sure that everybody's taken care of. So um, mm-hmm. times like this, it is beneficial to get out there and actually get out and shoot a few roosters um, and try to thin that ah, population that's... down. You know, I always try to strive for a eight to one, seven to one ratio. I never get there, but. Um, <laughs> right. Well, that's my shooting is too say... bad for that. Well, I've seen you hit a couple birds before. You don't put yourself down like that, but I, I, when people say it's too cold out there, it's not good to be out there hunting them. I, I tell them, I think there's a benefit to hunting them in this kind of weather. I think if you can take a few roosters out, you're going to help the remaining hens. And how many chicks can a hen have in the spring? Uh, you know, optimally, you hope they, they're going to hatch 15 and then eight to eight or nine of them are going to survive to adulthood. I mean, that's under mm. best conditions. Normally you'll see each hen have you know, five to six chicks that survive to adulthood. Um, so they can reproduce really quickly. So I, yeah. I actually I, use that information when I talk to landowners because sometimes, you know, I like to knock on doors and talk to landowners that have property And this time of the year, most of them are done hunting. Um, especially if they're just deer hunters and they have pheasants, you know, and you talk to them, they say, well, I kind of like seeing the pheasants. And I say, totally get that. They're a beautiful bird. I love watching them too. Um, but as I start talking to them, I, I explain to them kind of how things work in, in the pheasant world and how roosters can push the hens out and their population doesn't necessarily, um, benefit from having those roosters stay there through the winter the following year, they might have a lot more birds if the remaining hens survive out there. And when they start to look at it that way, they're like, you know what? Yeah, why don't you go get rid of a couple yeah. of those roosters out there and say, done deal, let's what. do this. I'll yeah. do you a favor. I'll take care of them <laughs> yes. for you. Exactly. Yeah, I do, so you know, use it. Yeah. You know, when I talk to you know people want to get out hunting, I do say, if there's a big storm coming in, maybe take those couple of days off on the front end let those hens get out and feed and, and get settled in for the storm. 
But as soon as that storm breaks or you're on that back end, yeah, jumping out there and taking care of some roosters is not going to hurt your populations at all. Um, and it's, it's a safe way of doing it. And you're not going to stress those hens out um, because it's on the back end of the storm or after that storm's passed. So, yeah, it's it, in ways it can help your population out by thinning some of those roosters out. Well, crap. I think I made a mistake by going on the front end of the storm now, Matt. <laughs> no. I didn't want to, I was felt guilty saying it, but yeah, I no. would, you know, I usually hunt the back ends, not the front yeah. ends. And then, um, and, and after the storm's passed, they get out there and you're not going to hurt those hens at that point. Um, but typically I like to leave them and, it, and everybody does it differently. Typically though, mm-hmm. I like to leave that, that day beforehand. And then the leading onto it that day, I'll usually leave the birds alone. Yeah, I'm going to do their thing and then get back after them right after that. That it did, you know, as I'm walking out there and I'm thinking how, how brutal it is, it did cross my mind a little bit too. And so when I flushed those hens and the birds, I watched them all go into the next, uh, patch of, um, pine trees that are right in the center of the cattails. And I thought, I'm not going to go after those birds that I just watched land. I just did one walk along the edge and I'm like, I don't want to push them again because I'm, a, I'm assuming they went to the spot that they're going to be able to handle these elements, um, which is where I wanted to see them go, to be honest. And normally, you know, on a normal hunt, I'd, I'd work it in a way where I'd push them into that one and then into the next one. And then that's why I anticipate yep. getting a few of them to hold. Um, so this time I just did the one walk and uh, watched them go where I, I, normally see them go and i thought yeah you're good there that's <laughs> hunker down for the next couple of days we're not i'm not going to mess with you again um, so you did the right thing you're you're fine there that that's the right thing to do yeah yeah now you see you, how you i made myself feel better yeah thanks yeah. all right <laughs> um is there a time of day that it's beneficial to hunt or not hunt the birds in the late season it, it that doesn't seem to really matter that much um especially late season, early season, you know, we always tell people to hunt that last hour of the day mm-hmm. because they're back in the cover, you know, otherwise they've been out feeding. Um, this time of year, you can find them pretty much any time at any point um, in that thicker thermal covers. What I would key in on is those cattails and those tree belts and that thick stuff. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're going to be in there throughout the day. Um, they might be cycling in and out, but there's always going to be birds in there. Um, and, it, and it's a safe bet to go there and hunt those spots and it doesn't seem to matter if it's at 10 a.m or at 4 30 when it's getting dark they're going to be in there i cleaned that bird when i got back and it had no room left to put one more kernel of corn in i'm amazed at how well these birds adapt and make it through i don't know where it found all that corn but there was i mean it was packed which is it makes me feel good knowing that they can get at the food that they need. Um, I think sometimes, like you said, we get a little soft um, when we don't give them enough credit for how amazingly strong they are to be able to to get through these conditions. Um, As, as hunters that obviously care about the birds, I mean, we're, we're out there to shoot them, but we do really care about them. What, what are some things that we could do to, that would be beneficial for the wildlife at this point. Yeah. At this, at this point, it's, it's looking at 
either you know helping promote or if you're a landowner too, um, you know, doing the work on setting up some good thermal winter cover, um, doing it right and working on that kind of stuff. Because it comes down to, you know, we hear a lot of talk about, well, I should go out and spread corn and supplementally feed them and things like that. Mm-hmm. But that comes with its own drawbacks and its own side effects that you don't want to do. The best thing we can do is is prepare for the next one. Um, when you're in the teeth of it, there's nothing you can do about that storm. But start preparing for the next ones next year and the years down the road. Um, plan out habitat and make sure that these winter cover, these winter areas are addressed on the properties or you know, they have good cover to get to and some food sources that like food plots. Um, that's what the best thing we can do is start planning for the next one. Because um, once we're in the middle of it, it's, it's kind of too late for that storm. Hmm. Like I said, you know, a lot of, we hear a lot of talk about folks wanting to go out and supplemental feed, you know, put out corn feeders or just spreading corn out. Um, and their heart, everybody's heart's in the right place when they're trying to do that. But um, typically we see increased predation at that point because the birds are congregated. Um, then they become dependent on that food source. So you have to keep doing it for the rest of the year. Things like that that happen. Um, and then with, with bird flu going on, which we haven't seen in upland birds at all, but the more you congregate them, the more chance there is to have something happen like that too. So um, I always caution people to, to not do the supplemental feeding um, and just start planning for, for next spring where you can start doing some of that habitat work and get prepared for next year. What about if you don't have the ability to do the habitat work? So that's where, like, if, you know, if you're not a landowner yourself, talking mm-hmm. to people that you know, um, and just talking, spreading the word about what's good habitat and planting those seeds to, to people that, you know, in the Dakotas and Minnesota, we all are very close to somebody that has land. Um, you might not have it, but you know somebody that does. And just planting those seeds to those people that... Let's look at, you know, maybe look at doing something in your marginal cropland that's not producing mm-hmm. a return for you. And look at, you know, talk with the experts and put the right cover in there. And just planting seeds like that um, really go a long ways. Because, you know, it's um, as much as I like to think as a biologist, we say something and people just automatically do it. That's not the case. It's friend to friend, peer to peer. That's where the decisions get made to do the right yeah. things. Um so that's the biggest thing that, you know, I always talk to my friends that are hunters that don't own land, just be out there and speak the word and spread the, spread the message. And you never know when it's going to light a fire. Walton's has been one of our best supporters and I'm forever grateful for that. Brett Walton and his boys and John Tremblay, the whole family there at Walton's, they work to provide everything that we need to prepare and process our wild game. And right now, I'm told if you order anything on their site, over 5,000 items, by the way, it ships the same day. Anything from seasonings and spices to stuffers and grinders, mixers, everything but the meat. They've got it. And right now, they've got it on sale, making it even better. If there's anything you might need for yourself or that hunter or angler in your life, odds are they've got it. Check out Waltons.com. The flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we changed the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. 
exclusive flight control FlexWad technology and a mix of copper plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strains through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. Hunting season is here, and North Dakota is one of my favorite places to spend a fall day. That's because North Dakota is a bird hunting paradise. You can hunt both waterfowl and upland birds all in the same day, and North Dakota has approximately 700,000 acres of private land open to public walk-in hunting. This year, North Dakota has a population estimate of 3.4 million breeding ducks, which is 38% above the long-term average. And their prairie pothole region is smack dab in the middle of the central flyway. Their spring water index also came way up, over 600% from last year's drought. The habitat on the landscape looks great, and bird reports are strong throughout the state. With a little scouting, you just might find yourself in a field surrounded by wild flushing pheasants, sharp-tailed grouse, and Hungarian partridge. Plan a legendary bird hunt this fall in North Dakota at legendarynd.com. Are you familiar with, um, and it's kind of a... A little bit of a controversial topic. I know Pheasants Forever recently addressed it on social media or posed the question, are you in favor of, not you, but this was a question that was posed on social media, are you in favor of states uh, releasing birds in hopes that it would generate more interest? And I say that because in Montana, they did this recently. And I believe... Most people, if not everybody at Pheasants Forever, would be against this. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Are you familiar with totally, this? Yep. yep. Yeah. And I've, I've gotten in these conversations with several folks. Um, and it, where we're coming at from Pheasants Forever, where I come at is those dollars, releasing pheasants is expensive. It's, it's mm-hmm. very expensive. Each one of those birds is about $35 to $50, depending on where they come from or you know, the system that's being used each one of those birds costs that much money to put out there. If we would take that money and invest it in habitat improvement and access improvement to good habitat and that kind of stuff, it's going to go a lot farther and be long-term sustainable than putting that money into those birds and buying those birds for a one-time thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's no long-term benefit to it. You know, those, all the research has, has shown that they, uh, they don't, past one to two weeks, I mean, your, your survivability is down to about 5%. Um, so there's just, it's a flash in the pan type event. Um, so where if you, as a state agency, especially if you can take that money and reinvest it in habitat improvement or like I said, access to private land, that's in good habitat. Um, you're going to see way more benefits from that. You're going to see way more birds being produced in that. Um, and that's more opportunity for hunters to get out and chase those wild birds. Um, which I think if you pulled most hunters, that's what they'd, they'd like to do is chase wild birds. Right. Um, so there's, there's a long-term, there's a long-term and a short-term look at it. And, you know, like Pheasants Forever are always looking at the long-term, the sustainable approach. And it's definitely investing in access and habitat um, is a lot more long-term sustainable. Right. I'm with you 100% on that. I, I do hear from some people that say, well, pheasants were released here once upon a time. They weren't here naturally. So... What do you got to yep. say about that? Nice. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good, that's another good discussion that, that we have a lot. Um, the thing that people need to keep in mind with that is those birds that were released originally were wild birds that came over from China. Um, so they were, they were used to the wild. 
Um, and that's different, you know, that's relocation work and that has shown to have some success in areas. Um, when it's, we're talking release birds that are coming from a pheasant farm or something like that, they haven't been in the wild and probably several generations haven't been in the wild. Mm -hmm. So that's where they lose those innate abilities to care for themselves. Um, look out for predators and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's two different, two different approaches that often get lumped into one. You know, what happened originally, and we've seen it done before with some state agencies where they're relocating wild birds, um, they have a higher chance of survivability than those pen birds do. That's that's really good information for, I mean, I would assume almost everybody listening to this podcast right now is a hunter. Um, so that's good information for them to understand yeah. when they have that conversation with other people that say, yeah, well, once upon a time they were released here too, but you differentiate relocating a wild bird with the innate ability to escape predators and survive on its own into a different area that will figure out how to survive in that area versus a bird that has been fed out of a, out of a bucket, you know, and protected. So, and it's not easy to separate that. I mean, you look at it, it seems like the same process. They're coming out of crates and it looks the same to everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's the nuances behind where that bird came from that make a difference. I mean, even with relocation, you don't have a hundred percent success. You're probably more at 50% survivability. Um, cause you're still having to figure out a new area and a new, just a new landscape. So you're still going to see a lot of mortality on those wild birds being moved, um, sure. but it's a lot better. And it's, it's actually some, it's sustainable. Um, you're going to have enough to get to the next spring to recruit, um, off those wild birds being relocated that you just don't have with the pen birds. Based on this information that seems so simple to you and I, who makes a decision to release pen raised birds into the wild, hoping to generate more hunter interest like they did in, in Montana? Who, how does that come about? I mean, is it, is it in legislature? I mean, I, I know politicians make a lot of decisions and not always correct ones um you know where does yeah. this happen um you know it's i'm not totally sure where like montana's came from but i'm pretty confident it was a legislative thing um i think if i'm remembering correctly and somebody's going to probably correct me here and I, I welcome it um i think you know there was always there'd been money historically set aside for this stuff from the legislature that the state wasn't spending where they were spending it on habitat work um, and the legislature came back a couple of years ago and said, no, you need to spend it on releasing pheasants. Um, and that's where it came from, was out of the legislature. It'd be interesting, because I think the, the hunter pushback on it sh- should generate at least them talking about it again. You know? Yep, and it's, it's being that's, talked about a lot. I've heard it from several people already asking questions on it. And it's, they've mm-hmm. definitely got people, people are listening to it and watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that was interesting was South Dakota changing their hunting season to the end of January, extending it by a full month. <clears throat> and I've talked to biologists around uh, around the country, uh, some from Pheasants Forever as well, um, not necessarily on the show, but just, you know, I'm in my travels. And when we talk about the fact that, you know, like you and I just mentioned that it can do good to actually take a few more roosters out why don't more states consider extending the pheasant hunting season then? And maybe you know that some are considering it. 
you know, it, it wasn't an easy sell in South Dakota. Um, I feel like us upland hunters are very stuck in our ways and tradition is a big thing for us. That's like the noon opener in South Dakota, all these traditions that happen. Um, it's hard to get, to get those season dates changed. This South Dakota change a couple of years ago was about 10 years in the making of people talking about it and saying, Hey, this won't hurt our populations. We have extra roosters. And it took a long time to get to this point in South Dakota. Um, I think it just as a, a group, a community where we kind of get set in our ways um, mm-hmm. and it's hard and, and people don't want to change it. Um, so I think that's what holds back this from happening in other States. A lot of it is just the tradition is this is we shut down on the first of the year and we're just going to keep doing that. Um, whether it's, justified or not that's just what we do and i think as a community that's just we just we're stuck in our ways you haven't heard any rumblings from neighboring states that are considering it i haven't no um that's kind of surprised me i thought some of the neighboring states would pick up on it i mean nebraska to the south always has ran a little later than us um but you know minnesota north dakota i really thought they would start talking about it and i haven't picked up on any discussions about it well, maybe I'll start planting some seeds over here no, in Minnesota no, we and want, see what I can do. <laughs> we want people to come visit us over here. Oh, you get plenty. You get plenty. Don't we can always it. welcome more. Yeah. Um, and let's let's we'll wrap it up here with just kind of uh, what you're seeing on the landscape. I know you kind of talked about it, you know, before the blizzard here. But are there certain parts of the state that if people say, you know what, I got another hunt or two left in me, I'm going to drive out to South Dakota. If somebody was going to come, where would where would you send them? Where do you think is the highest population of birds right now in your state? You know, I think that the logical area to go to um, for a number of reasons is that James River Valley. You know, anywhere from Minnesota, from Mich- Mitchell all the way up to Aberdeen. Um, there's a lot of there's a ton of access with the James River CREP program going on in that watershed. I mean, that's eighty five thousand acres opened up in that program. Plus, you know, all your walk-in access and, and your game production areas and waterfall production areas. There's just a ton of access in that James River Valley. And mm-hmm. it's good habitat. The bird numbers are phenomenal. They were leading into the storm. The bird numbers were phenomenal. Um, I would, And it's it's a shorter drive than going farther out to Pier or farther out west. Um, so that's where I would, you know, recommend folks go is looking in that James River Valley. There's also some good hunting up in the northeast. Um if you really like to cast and blast, dice fishing is phenomenal there too. Um, True. Yep. But I, you know, typically it's it my go-to is is that James River Valley. I'm um, not just because I have a farm there in that area, but um, just looking at all the access and the habitat that's in that valley, um, it's it's where the best of the best is at, and it's easy to get to. You don't have to have connections. You can just go go hunt these crep areas or these walking access areas and find birds. A few weeks ago, I, I'm not going to give away my spot totally, but you know, I was hunting and I will drive around looking at a, a crep area not far from our farm and going down the road and there was 15 roosters in the ditch, just in a half mile stretch right on this crep that nobody was hunting. Um, so the birds are out there. Um, people just need to go after them and chase them. Do you feel like there's a, a solid population of hunters that still hunt in January out there? No. Um, not like it should be or could be. Um, there's not a lot of diehard people that are out there past this time, past Christmas. Um, honestly, it hasn't been used like I thought it would. So I think if you do want to come out, you're going to find a lot of acres that are 
left alone. You're going to have a lot of spots to yourself. Yeah. Last week I was in North Dakota hunting and I just, you know, I saw a property that to me looked birdie. Um, I looked on Onyx and it showed who owned the property and I saw the farm. So I drove over to the farm and I thought, yeah, I'm just going to knock on the door. This time of the year, your chance of getting access is so high. Um, he basically looked at me, he goes, yeah, go ahead. No big deal. Good luck out there. You know, he goes, I own over here, here. I'm like, yep, I, I've got this app here. My phone tells me all the property where your boundary is. And he goes, all right, sounds good. Good luck. I go, would you like a pheasant if I get one? He goes, nah, that's okay. You can have them. <laughs> and uh, that, you know, I mean, that, that's basically the entire conversation. I was like, all right, well, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Merry yeah. Christmas, you know? And, and um, it's just a that, remind, a reminder, yeah, to people that this time of the year, most people are, you know, they're done hunting and they're willing to let you go out. And like you said, there's a lot of birds on public land still, so you don't have to. But uh, sometimes the birds on private have been touched a little bit less. They're still wild, and oh man, they were they they acted just like they were on all the public land when I walked out mm-hmm. there. But I, I still put one in my vest and was grateful for it. Yeah, and that's that is a great point. I mean, this time of year, you know, it, folks are more willing to do it. They haven't seen a whole bunch of hunters out lately, or they're done hunting. So, I've also had really good luck down here this time in January in December, asking for permission and getting on. You know, once deer season wraps up and and things like that, people are just a lot more willing to let people out there to roam around. One other uh, suggestion. If you do that, not you, Matt, but if somebody listening knocks on a door, maybe you can do it too. I don't know. But um, after the hunt, I like to go back and thank them, you know, and say, here's where I walked and this is what I saw and I got one or I got two or whatever it might be and offer up a bird. I'll clean it for you if you'd like. Um, Would like for you to be able to have one. This is something you raised out here, you know, but just being able to show the appreciation instead of just leaving. Um, afterwards without saying anything. When you go back there, not only does that give you an opportunity to continue the relationship and maybe come back the following season or another week or whatever, but it also gives the next hunter that knocks on the door a better opportunity to experience something that you've experienced out there. And it makes hunters as a whole, it makes us look better. And that's important. I mean, it really is important to um, to be a uh, hunter that cares and to show other people that might not hunt that, that we can um, come out and take care of land and be grateful and be generous too. And it's, it's not, it's not all bad hunters out there that leave birds in the ditch or dig, you know, whatever, what I'm saying, but there's people out there that give hunters a bad image is what I'm saying. And, and that's the far minority in the big picture. And a lot of those, a lot of those farmers are curious what you see, because they've yeah. taken pride in that. They've they've raised that bird, or that deer, on their land, and they're curious too what you're seeing and what you're hearing. And they, they take. Well, I've done the same thing. Um, you almost see their chest puff up a little bit when you tell them, "Yeah, I saw five roosters over here, and you know, what a great job you're doing." And you know, we saw a lot yeah. of birds. And, you know, they like to hear that. Um, cause it is, I mean, it's work, maybe it's unintentional work, but it's work they've put into it that causes that to happen. So right. yeah, I would, I would echo what you're saying. If you can, you know, stop by when you're done and just kind of give them a play by play of what you saw and, and leave that positive image on in their, their heads as you leave the door. 
Absolutely. And you know what else too? If that farmer, you you don't know the decisions that they're making as to which piece of grass clump they might leave or take down. And when they're driving that plow through in the spring, they might look at it and say, yeah, there was a bunch of pheasants in there last fall. I'm going to leave it. I don't, I don't want to get rid of that. I want to, I, I saw deer in there too. And if you just help them just think about, man, there was a great experience that happened because of that. I'm going to leave that there. Or I, I want to make that a little bigger. I want to make more of that. You don't know where that's going to lead. Yep. So yeah, I mean, it's such a simple thing that we can do. And now is a great time of the year. Also, I've done this for years, but my family, we make uh, Christmas cookies and the landowners that let me hunt, I usually bring a, a plate of Christmas cookies, but then I also bring some of the, uh, we make our own venison sausage and brats and uh I like to bring a little goodie bag over and bring my kids along. And we thank the people that let us go out there, especially when they see the kids come up and know that they were a part of that experience. Oh man, does it, it seems to sit well with them and they're glue. They're always, they always tell me afterwards, thanks for bringing your kids out here. I'm really glad that they can see what it's like to watch a deer walk up to them or see pheasants flush or grouse or whatever it might be. So just a reminder that those types of gestures go so far and will continue to help you for years to come. I think you should come out on my place if you're going to bring me cookies. <laughs> well, I've got a few days in January that I might be open. I think I could swing something. <laughs> I'm going to talk as soon as we hang up here. <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm heading to Kansas, nope. actually. I'm going to chase some quail down there in uh, Kansas the first week of January. So um, That'll be fun. That'll be, yeah, that'll be one of our upcoming shows. I, I haven't gotten after the Bob Whites yet this year. I've had a nice mixed bag from Alaska to the forest to the open prairies, but uh, not flushed a quail yet. And the itch is, I need to scratch it. We'll just say that. Um, yeah, Matt, they're, they're fun little bird chase. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time today. I hope you weather the storm. I'm, uh, I wish all of you, um, depending on when you're listening to this, a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Happy holidays to everybody. There's still days left in the season. Don't pass up the opportunity to see a bird explode out of the snow. It is something that will capture you for a long time. I can tell you because I just watched it happen. And if you have the opportunity, bring somebody along to watch it too. They'll know what it's like to be tired and sore from walking through the snow, but also it's it's a good tired and, and a good sore. With that, I will be back next week on a brand new year. And we'll continue to tell stories from the places that we love. The fields, the birds, the dogs, the guns, all of the good stuff. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of the Flush Podcast. 